make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 52 of Polite Conversations podcast. Somewhere out there, free speech warriors are probably flagging this content as we speak. So if you like what I do and want it to grow and thrive and survive, please consider supporting the show via patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. And of course, a shout out to all the patrons who make this show possible. You guys are the very best. And now on to the episode. I'm here today with Matthew Sears, professor of classics at the University of New Brunswick. We'll be talking about Orientalism specifically in Disney's Aladdin, and I'm sure we'll talk about some other stuff too. Matthew, thanks so much for joining me today. How's it going? It's going very well. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I've been following you for a while on Twitter, and I have to say I really appreciate your um, criticisms of Quillette and the IDW. Right. Well, it's it gets a little wild out there sometimes, but I mean, <laughs> someone's got to call these people to account, and Quillette just makes it so darn easy. <laughs> Believe me, I get so much hate for the same, especially because I'm an ex-Muslim who grew up in Saudi Arabia and right. could have been such a useful tool for that whole narrative, right? Like. Yeah, and, and I, you, I mean, there are others in, or at least that claim a similar background to yours, who they do parade out as yeah. kind of mascots. Yep, yep. Um, and I, I face a lot of of hate from that kind of crowd. Um, it, I don't think nearly the kind of level that that women and especially women of color get. But but just because I'm a white guy that studies the classics. I'm supposed to be one of them, right? You should have and, been like Peterson's favorite guy, right? Right, and I'm, a, I'm the, I'm, <laughs> I should be an alpha lobster of some kind, and the fact that I'm not, it really seems to tick them off. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty great. I'm glad you're out there doing what you do, and uh, more people need to do it because, really, I don't understand how people don't see this. That these people with their academic veneer and yeah, their eyes it, of credibility. They are so dangerous with what they're pushing with their like race science and Well, it's true. Know. I mean they're they're claiming the prestige that scientific and other academic fields have for their messages. And it doesn't matter to the general public too often that they don't actually represent these fields well or even know what they're talking about. But the fact that, you know, Peterson can claim to be a full professor at the University of Toronto means he automatically gets more credibility than he should have because he really doesn't know what he's talking about. And it's really annoying from being inside the academy and seeing people use their positions this way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you tweeted something uh, on Orientalism the other day. That's It's something that I think about on and off quite a bit. Like, I have so many things to say about it, you know. Oh, so, it's a huge topic, for sure. Yeah. So it really fascinated me to, to read your thread on it. I'll link it in the show notes. And uh, you, you said, My favorite go-to example of racist iconography in pop culture that most people have no clue is racist is Disney's Aladdin. Just look at those adorable kids. And then you went on to provide some examples. Right. So, yeah, I thought we could talk about it a bit. Yeah, I, I, I'm happy to. And, and I should start off by saying, as your listeners will probably know, I'm not by any means the first person to flag these problems with Aladdin. And, I mean, when it came out in the 90s, it was a huge controversy. I mean, there were New York Times articles yeah. about it. You know, Arab American groups lodged formal complaints and actually had the, the words of the opening song changed for the video release. Right. Let me just in, in read one. the lyrics. I have them right. here. Oh, I come from a land from a faraway place where the caravan camels roam, where they cut off your ear if they don't like your face. It's barbaric, but hey, it's home. Right, and, and now, <laughs> I mean, it's, 
I saw it in theaters as a kid. Yeah. And of course loved it as every kid did. Yeah, so um, did I. And, I mean, I didn't have access to theaters because those were banned right. in Saudi. Well, <laughs> I was in Vancouver where there were theaters. Um, but, you know, my parents loved it because of Robin Williams and everything else. And uh-huh. Uh, but on the video release, it now is a markedly different voice for that one line about cutting off your ear. And it's now, I think, where it's flat and immense and the heat is intense or something. And then it goes back to the original voice. It's really a like a cut and paste job. Mm. Uh, so, so Aladdin, from the beginning, had some controversy around it, but it kind of has still managed to remain as one of the great sort of canonical Disney movies and it very few people recognize or or feel that it's problematic today. And that's just the thing, right? Like you don't, it doesn't have to be one thing or the, like you don't have to hate Aladdin to recognize that it has some issues in this way. And, you know, you don't have to like completely destroy, you know, your whole childhood over it and be like, Oh my God, Aladdin is so problematic. Like I can't think back to the days I liked it fondly. Like it doesn't have to be that way. Like I love Aladdin. I still do. And I laugh at some of the jokes. Yeah. But I do recognize that there are some issues. And I think even as a kid, like some of it felt kind of off to me, but I still loved it. Like we were so desperate and starved for representation, like in mainstream children's books and movies. There was no such thing that pointed to anything remotely similar to what we were experiencing that we were happy to even embrace caricatures. And that's, uh, I think, I'm glad you bring the, these issues up because, you know, along with, with you, uh, I, I, I try to take a nuanced approach to things. And I realize that there's a lot of literature, a lot of cinema, a lot of art that that I actually do like on, on many levels and a lot of artists and writers that are problematic. And, and we can identify and talk about those things without becoming some kind of Puritan yeah. and, and deciding that these things need to be you know banned or something like this. But, you know, people who, when, when I point out that there are racist elements and stereotypes in Aladdin that might be harmful, you know, the, the automatic response is, uh, from so many people is that, you know, why can't you enjoy anything? Um, you know, and, and why do you have to ruin everything for everybody else? And, and the thing is, I mean, I watch comedians all the time that I, and a lot of the jokes make me cringe. And sometimes that's mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not throwing everything out when, when we, when I call for people and try to point out that these things are there. Um, and, I, and I'm also glad you brought up the idea that, um, from the perspective of someone who was growing up in an Arab context, uh, that having any representation of Arabs and Arabia on the movie screen, even if it's problematic, uh, it's complicated because it, in some ways it might be better than no representation at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other ways it might be worse, but it's it's not just a black and white thing. Right, exactly. And I think a similar thing has happened recently with Apu from The Simpsons, right? Yes. Um, and my background is South Asian, uh, Pakistani, even though I was raised in Saudi Arabia, so I kind of okay. relate to both things. Right. Um, and, you know... Apu has made me cringe a lot of times and sometimes it just seems like, you know, someone, some white dude is making fun of my dad, basically. Right. And it is, it's Hank Azaria, right? So it's a white dude. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It would be completely different, I think, if it wasn't. But I also love Apu and love The Simpsons and have laughed at many of the jokes and have also been delighted by having some sort of representation in the early days. So it's not as simple as, you know, you hate The Simpsons or you love The Simpsons or Aladdin is problematic or it's not. It's a combination of complicated feelings. And I think there's no harm in acknowledging that. And it always comes from looking back at the past as we evolve, right? Sure. I mean, we can change our views on certain things and that could be healthy to sort of look back and think, well, I used to think this was uncomplicated, but now I see that it is a little complicated, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and The Simpsons, though, is a little is I would say less racist than Disney um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, yeah. Disney has a host of problematic things, but I mean, I think for the '90s they were doing pretty well. Um, they did have a a white person voicing a stereotypical 
you know, Indian convenience store owner. But at the same time, whenever they brought up stereotypes of, of India or Indians, they, they usually did it to sort of highlight the ignorance and buffoonery of the white characters in the show yeah. uh, who didn't understand Apu and his culture. So they but were sometimes trying to say, it was just uh, not that. Right. You know, like Apu <laughs> strapping on, like, I don't know, eight milk bottles to, to his chest to feed all this. Well, sometimes it's just ridiculous babies. stuff like right. that. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyways, it's, it's yeah. interesting to me that uh, I guess conservatives get so um, protective about this stuff. Right. Like even yeah. when I speak to Pakistani conservatives, I've seen them get really mad at like local feminists who will point out that, you know, the, these nursery rhymes and fairy tales and things are, are of the past. And we've evolved beyond that. And we should change these things. Like, I think I said something like uh, about the nursery rhyme, sugar and spice and everything nice. You oh, know, yes. Right. This. <laughs> And and so these like Pakistani Islamic right wingers got so mad at me for saying that, and it's just so reminiscent of that to me. Like I get to see both parts of the world, and they're conservatives right. who supposedly hate each other, but are so similar in so many ways. It, it, that's I mean I think that's part. Uh, I think it's endemic to conservatism. Yeah. I mean, even though the word conservatism means you're trying to conserve things. Uh, just on the most basic yeah. level. And I think they see, you know, if people like us point out that some of these things that you've grown up with or that have been a part of our culture for so long or um, might actually need a rethought <laughs> or a, a rethinking, uh, they think we're just eliminating things. And, and, and I think they see it as their job to conserve those sometimes. I think that's the natural I mean, if you really want to get down to, to basic, you know, even personality traits, I mean, the natural inclination to kind of keep things versus the natural inclination to kind of push against things right. that are but there. Right, but then I don't understand why they dislike Islamic conservatives so much for just wanting that uh, right. in a stronger way, you know? It's their right. I mean, inclination. Cultural conservatism and religious conservatism are probably much more related than they would like to admit. Yeah, and, but and, they'll yeah. point at the non-Western cultural conservatism, even outside of religion. Right. It's usually tied to religion, but... Yeah, indirectly, at least. Yeah, but they'll be like, oh, you know, their culture is inferior. But, but they really just want similar things, right? They are right. down with the anti-feminism, down with the... They're now starting to adopt the anti-SJW language. I've seen Islamists who are Peterson oh, fans, my. you know, and it's frightening. I've seen Islamic MRAs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, it makes them strange bedfellows. And I think at the end of the day, if someone becomes prominent like Peterson, for essentially... You know, making arguments for, you know, quote, traditional family structures and gender roles, then everybody from every corner of the Internet and corner of the globe who wants to fight for that kind of vision of society is going to embrace the other one, uh, even if on the surface they probably should hate each other. Right. Um, you know, because, you know, Peterson's going to be posting lots of stuff against what he sees as Islamism while he's also saying that these essentially compatible with Islamism views of the family should be the way yeah. things are. Yeah. I mean it's it's bizarre. <laughs> it is bizarre. And in a way they do like hate each other, but in a way they also love each other and it's there's so many confusing alliances right now in this political world that we live in today. It, it is. I mean, it, 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 you know, before we get back to Orientalism, I mean, I just keep, I keep thinking of the fact. I mean, the, the one of the most bizarre things I keep seeing is all of these conservatives in Canada and the United States all of a sudden discovering that they're. Um, pro women's rights uh, and pro religious freedom when it's when when you can like whine about you know Muslims yeah you know all of a sudden you know pro LGBTQ rights you know the same people like I think like Barbara Kay yeah who you know write columns about gays trying to kidnap your children and force them to be gay and all trans people being body right. snatchers and but all of a sudden they're like these gay rights champions because it's convenient <laughs> for bashing Islam over the head it's just right. It's absurd. <laughs> right. And women's rights champions, these selective yeah. 
we care about women's rights when it comes to the Middle East, but really hate feminists when it comes to the West. I actually had a couple of Saudi feminists on my show uh, last year where they talked about this being used as pawns by Western anti-feminists and how much they hate it and how they've had to keep track, basically, of the sort of skeptosphere, this like IDW. It, it didn't have that term yet, but this... Oh. This whole yeah. group, like they know, like women in Saudi Arabia know who Dave Rubin is, know who Milo Yiannopoulos is, I, I guess very online women, but, you know, they know and they know, yeah. because they've had to familiarize themselves with the people who use them as pawns. Right. Well, I mean, a lot of people now are using a, one of the classic troll avatars now on Twitter is that icon of the uh, woman taking her hijab off in, in yeah. Tehran. Yeah. Right? And so when you see that now, instead of seeing it this, as this sign of solidarity with this women's movement in Iran, it's almost always now a sign of a right-wing Peterson troll. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's absurd. Again, I just keep coming back to that word, but... Uh, you know, it's these these diametric opposites are just using any political symbol they can get their hands on to try to gain a leg up on the, you know, tyrants like me, yeah. who, <laughs> who actually think women's rights are also something that people are trying to stifle in Canada. Right. And we, we should probably call them on it. <laughs> but if it's not Sharia, then it's not worth but, opposing. But yeah, you know, and it's painful for me to see as an ex-Muslim who actually does want to push back against religious conservatism and, uh, you know, uh, the Islamic right to see the term ex-Muslim being used in that way, too. Usually if you see, like, you know, ex-Muslim ally or someone who just obsesses and fetishizes ex-Muslims in their social yeah. media bios, they are not, like, people who care about minorities within minorities in Muslim communities, there are people who just want to to have a convenient tool to bash Islam with. Right. You know, and it's the ultimate sort of whataboutism. Yeah, yeah. You and can't be like, you know, an ally to ex-Muslims <clears throat> and be super, super anti-immigrant. Like, what would you want all these ex-Muslims that you hope are created, what, what, do, you, what do you want them to do? Like... If you're yeah. super anti-immigrant, you'll not allow them to come here and search for a better, more free of religion life, then you're, you're not a very good ally. Right. I would agree. <laughs> yeah. So back to Orientalism, though. Right. Um, well, I was just going to say, I mean, it's I don't think it's a it's just a fluke that, that we can kind of go off on, on these conversational tangents when talking about Orientalism, because I think it's a, a phenomenon that ties into all of these issues. Um, because ultimately, uh, you know, these, these um, allies of ex-Muslims and, and, and so on that we're talking about, um, see these people from traditionally Muslim countries as kind of mascots. Uh, and and I think that's at the heart of of Orientalism is is this simplification of what really amounts to you know million hundreds of millions of people dozens of countries dozens of language groups um, and even within Islam itself um, even people who are religiously observant Muslims just dozens of different strains and forms and, mm -hmm. and let, you know and, and and what orientalism does is it smooths that all over yeah. and makes that whole you know imagined part of the world just this one uniform undifferentiated um, and like kind of idealized and romanticized or vilified yeah um, you know fantasy world really but don't you think that that comes a bit from both the left and the right like the left i guess in a well-meaning way but they do tend to do it like glamorize burqas and well that that it, it, it's this i mean orientalism and so you know as you know, many people will know i mean this term was coined by edward said in, yeah. in 1978 in his book called orientalism um, Saeed would call out the left and the right equally. Mm -hmm. This is not a conservative or liberal uh, phenomenon. And in fact, as Saeed would point out, um, that some of the, the worst 
orientalizers around were the people that were, you know, the professors of like Middle Eastern studies mm. um, or like the Oriental Institute at the University of Chicago. Um, so it was the people that were supposed to be most sympathetic with and most concerned with 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 representing and speaking on behalf of things like the Middle Eastern world, for example, that were sometimes the guiltiest in in perpetuating these stereotypes mm-hmm. and presenting a, a, an inaccurate and and oversimplified picture of of the quote East. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Saeed was perfectly happy to point that out, and so I found myself in that kind of awkward space. Um, my first, so I, I started this kind of public persona that I now have uh, a year ago exactly. How does and, that work out with your university, by the way? Oh, it's fine. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, when you see university professors in the news, we won't name names in this podcast, yeah. but getting in trouble for their free speech quote, they're actually getting in trouble because they're jerks that are bad at their job. Mm. Um, you know, and so I have received nothing but support and for, you know, from my colleagues, uh, it's completely fine. I mean, I, I, I imagine that the people that work in the communications office who are constantly having to deal with people tagging UNB. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're mad at me thinking that I'm going to get fired. I mean, they probably roll their eyes when they have to go through and just ignore all those tweets. Mm-hmm. But, but no, there's no sense that, that, that I'm not doing my job as, as a professor and engaging this way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my first, my first public article was about, was in the Ottawa citizen and it was about the uh, proposed face covering ban in Quebec. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just compared it to the way that the ancient Romans persecuted the Christians and, 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 and every time something bad happened to Rome, there was a flood or there was a famine or something, they would just blame the Christians. Mm. And so if, if this was just the same thing happening in, in Quebec where, you know, if uh, the, the, the peak of the liberal party is not doing as well as it wants to in the polls or the economy is not doing as well, let's just talk about a face covering ban, um, you know, which is just a way to stigmatize, obviously, uh, observant Muslims that use the face cover. So I found myself writing an article against this ban mm-hmm. but that led everybody to sort of be like you know you're pro subjection of women mm-hmm. and, and you run that you're on that difficult to navigate tightrope where i don't want to you know come out and be like you know isn't the niqab wonderful i mean as, <laughs> but, but as, many people do do that i mean so as a person uh you know i don't like the niqab in the sense that you know, I'm, you know, a, a secularist and mm-hmm. don't think that that anybody should should you know feel like they need to cover themselves um, in public. Uh, and I don't. And, and, you know, women in my family don't. And but 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 at the same time, I'm you know, I'm, I'm against using the face covering as a way to stigmatize a group of people mm-hmm. and legislating against it in a way that's just going to mean that people who may or may not be already oppressed in certain ways are now no longer able to take the bus. Mm. Um, you know, so, but, but a lot of people, you're right. They do kind of romanticize these other cultures, uh, in ways that I also think are, are stereotyping Mm -hmm. and, and not helpful, uh, for, uh, coming up with any kind of solution or better understanding of groups of people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, this niqab issue, I, I, I'm a very vocal critic of the niqab, but I don't believe right. in, uh, you know, blanket bans on this kind of thing. And it's amusing to me how many so-called free speech warriors and libertarian types are totally right. down with controlling what people wear, right? Like, I think banning it in places like the bus or whatever would just encourage uh, already what's like violent attacks and hate and stuff that visibly Muslim women do get on right. public transport and things like that. Now, it's, it is it is like a tightrope to kind of navigate this subject because I'm very, very vocally opposed 
to the niqabs as someone who grew up in Saudi Arabia, had to deal with morality police, was forced by the Absolutely. state, yes. you know, and I've seen my mom like be threatened with the morality police's cane just because her headscarf slipped. So I really dislike it being glamorized or downplayed or called feminist. Like I understand the urge to sort of show solidarity with Muslim minority women, especially in this really anti-Muslim environment. And I, you know, want to do the same. But at the same time, I want this space to also push back internally among my communities, right? Right. And, ideas. And, this is, and this is a conversation that the people can and should have, and especially people who come from a context in which there are people in the community with face coverings, uh, like yourself that you're talking yeah. about. I mean, this you know, you can have reform movements within cultures, within these conversations are important and should be encouraged. Yeah. But this just isn't a role for the state. And it's certainly not a role. I mean, the, the biggest problem I have with these legislative movements and when you see them in Europe as well is that it's so clearly just cynical. Yeah. And it's so clearly just an attempt to drum up some kind of base support yeah. Um, and I mean, nobody in Quebec actually cares about who's proposing these laws, actually cares about women's lib. Yeah. Uh, it's just like we need more votes from these Lemute fools. And so we're going to uh, try to stigmatize people. And so that and I'm glad, you know, it's it is a complicated thing because to fight back against that, you do run the risk of of glamorizing uh, uh, things that yeah in, in, it's, in ways that aren't helpful it's hard and even when someone like me were to speak up in a very nuanced way we'd be called like i don't know you kippers or racist and it's like well no can you not see the difference of like a woman who's gone through this before who's just speaking out and right. someone who's using this as a as an issue to stigmatize visibly muslim women and when it comes to places like airport security or banks or, you know, courtrooms, there are reasonable things for the state to do, I think. There was that issue in the last election uh, right. where a woman from Mississauga d didn't want to show her face in uh, court. So she, di she did it right in a private... Um this is the citizenship ceremony. Yeah. And yeah. she did it in a, in a private room in front of the official. Uh, instead of in the public space. Yeah, right. but the articles surrounding her were oh, really yeah. painful for women in my situation to see. Like, this is a feminist thing, and this is actually liberating. And, and it's so strange for me to all of a sudden be so in opposition to the left on everything <laughs> that they're saying, all of a sudden when we agree on everything otherwise. It was a weird time, like... And I can't imagine, right, coming from, I mean, I'm not, I'm not dealing with that background myself or with family members in that situation. I mean, I deal with my own baggage and the fact that I come from like an evangelical conservative mm -hmm. Christian background and that has its own thing, mm -hmm. uh, as we're witnessing today in Washington. Mm -hmm. But, uh, <laughs> um, but it, it's the, it's the idea, I think, that we all have to be always thoughtful and and it's and it's we can have allies and we can have general positions that we take and fight for strongly, but uh, we still should be free to consider things with nuance. And we might not agree with a certain political side or a certain social side on everything. And deviating from that in 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 a certain situation shouldn't automatically lead to some kind of backlash. Right, and this I find is a is a form of modern Orientalism too. Like CBC, our national broadcaster, aired this documentary recently about uh, Muslim kids transitioning from an Islamic school to regular public school. Okay, and they portrayed it in this way. Like I know people that have actually pulled their kids out to put them in these religious schools, and it is not a very healthy experience. And there could have been something like more nuance talked about but they just portrayed this whole thing as you know these poor families are experiencing this trouble of not being able to assimilate and you know right. not being able to fit in i don't like the word assimilate but yeah, um, yeah but when it's so much more than that it's not just the racists that are a problem in that context right it's also the parents who are segregating their children and they're 
depicting that this is what Muslims are in Canada is right. is so harmful, especially when we're fighting for like a more uh, nuanced representation in the media to show that only conservative, very, very, very conservative Muslims are Muslims, as often CBC does, but they don't show like the trans Muslims, the gay Muslims, the progressive Muslims. It's always this caricature, this, you know, one-dimensional conservative equals Muslim. And that's yeah, and, just not true. And that is oriental. That is a facet of orientalism, this, 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 fa- this idea that, that it, it's one undifferentiated community. And, and I'm glad you sent to me um, the children's book that you wrote mm-hmm. um, about Eid. Eid, yeah. Eid, the sorry. holiday. Be- because, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of like the anti-Orientalist book, because what it does, it first of all, all the the drawings are of, and, and people when they think of Muslim, they think of a particular kind of Arab. Mm-hmm. Right? But that, that you drew, I mean, the fact that the largest Muslim country is, you know, Indonesia, you know, and like the second largest is India, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, and in Pakistan, uh, you know, south in in south and Southeast Asia, uh, and so you drew all of these different kinds of Muslim dress and people from different parts of the world, and 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 you highlight the fact that you can celebrate Eid you know, very religiously or not religiously, just mm-hmm. like people celebrate Christmas. Right. And, you know, nobody te- seems to think that if you have a Christmas tree, you're some kind of Bible thumper. <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think more of an, um, uh, more resources and, and, and cultural products like that, that, that emphasize that you can, you know, be culturally Muslim in, in, in many ways, and, 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 and be gay or, you know, and, and not be Arab, <laughs> for right. example. Um, or you can be a conservative Muslim from, you know, a, an Arab country. Uh, just like, you know, we, we just take for granted that, that our society celebrates, as I said, Christmas, where, you know, a, a relatively small percentage of those that have Christmas trees are actually going to, you know, be really into, you know, the incarnation of the Son of God part of it. <laughs> Uh, they're going to be more into the elf on the shelf part of it. Right, right. Yes, and you know, like I wish there were more resources like that for Muslim kids from different types of families, different denominations, and but there there just aren't. And I got a lot of anger for this book from right. all over. Like you know, religious Muslims didn't like it because I said you can not go to the mosque and you can just go for a picnic right. instead. Right. And that was not appreciated. I And then other people said that it was Orientalist because, of course, you know, I had this background of like minarets and things like that. So yeah, I, well, it is a Muslim holiday. I mean, it's no <laughs> weirder than a background of a Christmas tree or something for a Christmas. Yeah, yeah, it's strange. Right. So I wanted to ask you what what differentiates, I guess, an internal sort of romanticism of something like that in a children's book where I put like a bunch of minarets in the silhouette of the sky where that's not really how Saudi Arabia skyline looks or Pakistan skyline looks but you know having McDonald's arches and stuff like that just ruins the magic of what I'm trying to draw right it kind of looks like the Istanbul skyline but (laughs) um uh, it, Maybe it's just one small segment. One of it. small segment of it, but yeah, you're still going to have lots of non-religious buildings. Yeah. Um, uh, so the first thing that for me would differentiate a book like yours um, from something that's Orientalist uh, would be that you can do romantic, I think, imagery like that. But I think one of the key things for me, and I could be wrong, but would be. I mean that it's that it's written and created by you, mm-hmm. who you know you, you as you've told me today you you grew up in Saudi Arabia but you have Pakistani uh, origins, um, and you were a Muslim and you have family and friends and and and, and acquaintances that are Muslim, and and so 
that's different. Uh, so it's not appropriative in the same way if someone from within the culture, who's someone who celebrates Eid, who might do it in a secular way instead of a religious way, as mm-hmm. you're pointing out in the book, uh, you know, that voice, your voice, and that would, would strike me as, as, as more have more to say on these issues and more, you know, authentic experiences with these issues. And so the other uh, thing that, that sort of you wanted, uh, that we had discussed a little bit to talk about was this graphic novel Habibi. Mm-hmm. Did you get a chance to look at it? I did. I did. And it, and as, and, and as everybody else who's reviewed this book, it's, and I'm only recently getting into the whole graphic novel thing. And, and I and I actually can see that, that it's becoming more of an interest for me. So I'm glad you, you flagged this. Um, but as every reviewer that, that, that looked at it, I agreed that it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like stunning. The, the drawings are just virtuosic and they're they're breathtaking and they stick with you. And um, it's, you know, just a haunting and beautiful book. Um, but the author is is not Arab. He's not Muslim. And he doesn't know Arabic, for example. But he learned he, Arabic calligraphy just to make this book. Right. So he learned calligraphy. And he, so he's trying his hardest. And I actually, I, I sort of sit on the fence with this book because his whole goal was to have a kind of positive and rich yeah. and nuanced portrayal of you know, sort of generically Muslim things for a non-Muslim audience. And, and he was really concerned with showing the similarities between sort of Christian and Muslim cultures um, and showing the nuance in different people and that these are real individuals. Uh, but he ran into trouble with some reviewers because even though he kind of knew these things were Orientalist, whereas I don't think the people that did Aladdin yeah. even, even get it, uh, so the fact that he gets it and is trying to sort of, you know, in almost a tongue-in-cheek way kind of deal with it, mm-hmm. um, it still ends up being Orientalist. So he's copying a lot of his backgrounds from 19th century Orientalist paintings. And so... And some might be- just like generic, geometric, Islamic art, too. Right. So, so yeah. So he's got, you know, and if you've been, you know, if... if I know you have, but anyone who's been to, you know, a mosque, for example, will be familiar with... Because, you know, in Islam, you can't have, you know, uh, individuals represented at art. So you have various figurative patterns and things. And that shows up in Habibi, um, you know. And so I, I just thought it was beautiful. I think some of the problems, um, you, you wonder, you know, so, but is it being Orientalist? I mean, he, he did. He tried his best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and so that's that's where I, 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 I wonder. I, I don't I think it's a beautiful book. I, I would recommend it to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and but I think you you just do it with think, keeping these things in mind. I think you should, you know. There was a New York Times review of the book that that just sort of said is kind of parroting or or parodying Orientalism. Does that end up itself being Orientalist? Mm. Like it's it's tough. That's um, kind of the Simpsons defense too, right? Right, and and so I. I taught um, a few years ago a course on on the the, the ancient Greeks and the other. And, and I talked about different ways that the Greeks stereotyped, especially like Persians, mm-hmm. um, but but various other Scythians, Thracians, people that lived close to Greece but weren't Greeks, uh, and they did similar things. They they um, they would have like one way to represent a Persian. So if someone was dressed like a Persian on a Greek vase, you could tell automatically that it was a Persian. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter that Persians in real life probably dressed in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and uh, it didn't matter that some groups that they portrayed as all the same and called by the same name actually didn't call themselves that and were divided up into dozens of different language groups and things. So they, they had this orientalizing tent trend where they would kind of undifferentiate non-Greeks into one kind of group. Um, and so in that course, I, 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 you know, there are some Greeks that seem to make fun of the Greek tendency to do that. Um mm. You know, there's some Greek comedies that are produced that show these ethnic stereotypes, but they do it in a kind of really absurd way that that almost seems as much, in, in my reading of it, to be making fun of these stereotypes. Oh, that's as much interesting. As, as much as it's right, as much as it's making fun of that ethnicity. And so I showed the class an example of what I was trying to talk about by I showed a, a, a Flintstones clip 
from like the 60s uh-huh. in which there was a Japanese stereotype oh, yeah. in, in the in the cartoon. And, and it was just outrageous. Right. Mm-hmm. It was it was a Japanese stereotype um, and it was just it had served no function other than to just make fun of Japanese people. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, and this is in a context that's only, you know, a decade or so removed from internment camps and, and all the other wow. things, right? Yeah. In World War II. Um, and then I showed a clip from, you know, and there's lots of, but, but I showed a clip from The Family Guy, which has lots of problems. But it's a clip about anti-Semitism, where um, the main character in The Family Guy uh, wants, to have, wants to have a Jewish friend because that person will be good with money. You know, uh-huh. and so it's, it's this stereotype. But but the whole point of that episode was to make fun of the main character for being such an ignorant buffoon uh-huh. that he actually holds those stereotypes about Jewish people. And so both shows kind of like Borat, right? Right. Well, exactly. And so well, Borat's another example, I think, in this line. I mean, it might be bad. It might be wrong to do what Sasha Baron Cohen does in that. <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, certainly aesthetically wrong in certain. Oh but, yeah. I went to the theater to see that with a Jewish friend, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I I don't know what he's thinking right now, but he was laughing all the way through. That's funny, because I went with a guy from Kazakhstan. (laughs) Did you? (laughs) Yeah. And did he find it offensive? I mean, no, he thought it was great. Oh, really? (laughs) Because my my Russian friends, I guess, whose parents and stuff have roots in Kazakhstan, and they, they found it to be pretty offensive and that's the first time I really thought of it like that and right, because I, I my Jewish friend really liked it and so then I saw how it works differently on two different levels which I that, thought was interesting. That's really interesting and I know actually the people who were most offended by Borat were Romanians mm, because his, Kaz- his Kazakh village is actually yeah. in Romania and these people were just kind of unwitting Romanian villagers that he yeah. was just making fun of so but, uh, I mean, it, I guess it, it gets to all those layers, mm-hmm. but there are different ways to use ethnic stereotypes. And, and I, I think it's dangerous and you've got to be very careful whenever you use them. Mm-hmm. But you can use them to make fun of the ethnicity and, and sort of perpetuate harmful images of, of the other. Or you can use it to make fun and point out how ridiculous these stereotypes are. Mm-hmm. And, and, and sort of the, the latter can be... I think useful for sparking conversation, even though you have to be cautious about it. And as you say about Borat, uh, you still run the risk and, and, and should be careful uh, with, with how it comes across to, to the people that you're, you know, supposedly, you know, not trying to humiliate. But it, it's, uh, it's a hard thing. Uh, and it's, I think at the end of the day, I think the thing that, that, that distinguishes something like Aladdin from something like Habibi mm-hmm. is Habibi the the white non-Arab non-Muslim author of Habibi did actually do as much due diligence I think as, as anyone really could in his position mm-hmm. to as you say learn calligraphy um, and, and, and try to uh, whether he was successful or not try to portray um, commonalities try to portray um, a, a, a culture sympathetically into a, to a wider Western quote audience that might not be sympathetic to that other culture. Um, whereas Aladdin is just, I mean, it's all white people making Aladdin mm-hmm. uh, and it's just using what we already think about Arabs mm-hmm. in the non-Arabic world. It's just using it for entertainment value. And so it's just the song itself at the very beginning. I mean, it has this classic, you're in the Middle East now tune. Um, But, (laughs) so here's my thing, right? I agree that the song is really terrible, cringeworthy, and they're not in the right place to make that kind of criticism. However, it's not entirely an inaccurate criticism of Sharia punishments. No, I mean that. So, so what do you do about the fact that? Yeah. So and so, you know, people what, in my position in Saudi Arabia cannot make those tongue-in-cheek jokes. So sometimes when we see an external person that has the freedom to do it, it's kind of like a relief, right? Like, oh, thank God, like someone is talking about this because this is horrible. I mean, Saudi Arabia has right. horrific punishments. This isn't something that... So, so that's, a, 
That's a great perspective. Uh, and, you know, to be honest with you, I would not have thought of that if I hadn't talked to you today, that the idea that, so if you actually live in a society in which the kinds of punishments that are stereotyped in like the market scene in Aladdin, mm -hmm. like the cutting off the hand for th for theft and that kind of thing, and whips and all, and chaining up in dungeons and all the stuff that happens in Aladdin. If you come from a culture where that's still, I mean, there are beheadings and things and, mm -hmm. and whippings and all these things that we hear in the news all the time in Saudi Arabia, especially. Mm -hmm. and, and but you're not allowed to critique critique them because you're in there and <laughs> you will, you know, be be punished for for critiquing them. So, so there could be some value in someone who's free to do that doing it now but this didn't seem to come entirely from a good faith like we're concerned about you kind of place that that's what i would yeah, say they're not, i don't think that the, the disney was pushing for you know criminal justice reform in right. Saudi Arabia. <laughs> right. and, and also i don't think they were even concerned with the realities of of, of 20th century saudi arabia late 20th century is more than here's stuff we read about in the arabian nights yeah, uh, you know, kind of thing. So even though it might mirror what actually happens, and for someone like you to watch it, maybe it was it had a, a different meaning. But but the people that wrote the screen, but I would imagine, I guess I don't know them obviously. Um, th they're actually just getting it from we've read, you know, we've watched cartoons about you know Aladdin and things like this before, and we've seen comic books and we've seen stories, and and this is the kind of thing that that people think should happen in yeah yeah a generic Arabic city. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So it wasn't done as carefully and with as much uh, good intent behind it as it could have been. And I think Habibi, even though some people may find it orientalist, I think is absolutely brilliant it's beautiful it is beautiful and he seems to be honoring the culture so i just i can't find fault with it you know like i think he did right. such a good job and he provided like this really rich resource about about our culture in a way that people from within may or may not have the opportunity to do yeah, and, and it's and he didn't do what I would consider the cardinal sin of when you're you're talking about different cultures. He didn't do the uh, kind of dances with wolves or last samurai thing, where you have the one white guy in the movie um, save everybody else. Yeah, <laughs> it's so amazing that. how common that is. Yeah, oh, I mean, you didn't you didn't get the you know the the uh, the Kevin Costner is a better Native American than the Native Americans in the film, and and Tom Cruise is a better samurai than the. Japanese samurai. So he didn't do that. <laughs> Which, again, the fact that you can actually humanize and 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 make, you know, um, nuanced, genuinely, you know, Arabic characters. I mean, that's the other problem with Aladdin. What it does, as I tried to point out in my thread, is it makes Aladdin and Jasmine look basically just like slightly brown-colored white people. Yeah, and, and their accents too. They have no accent, you know. They speak just like you know, colloquial, like people from Los Angeles, and 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 they, you know, they don't. Other than Jasmine's kind of like midriff shirt, they don't really have anything kind of conventionally Arab about them. Whereas everybody else in the film does. That's not and, even like contemporarily conventionally Arab, and there's a whole weird yeah, meshing of I, cultures that happens that where anything in the East is sort of lumped in. There's like Indian element. She has a tiger called Raja. But and, she's got a tiger. She's, there, there's like snake charming going on. Yeah, there's a guy with a, <laughs> on a bed of nails. Right, yeah. And it's just so, anywhere that's like East of, you know, Constantinople. <laughs> Yeah, the Europeans, you know, Istanbul, of course, but is is like in one place. Right. And, and so that happens even today. Like my niece watches this cartoon called Shimmer and Shine. I don't know if you have kids or I do, but I don't know it. that they've, they might watch it. Actually, it sounds familiar. They're like little genies and oh, you know, have this, this, they're very cute. I think they're adorable, but there's so many like orientalist elements <laughs> to it. Right. There's like all these magical minarets, flying carpets, hookah pipes and gems and this jewelry that seems distinctly Indian to me. So right. I don't know what culture 
they're from. But that's something that's always bothered me is that there's there's no regard for accurately portraying the Middle East or India. It's just a generic well, hodgepodge. It, it, and, and from what like sort of little kind of I know of even just India, I mean, even, you know, and, and the way that I've encountered, uh, you know, I had a, an Indian roommate uh, in, in graduate school, but, but just talking about the, the, the wide variety of even regional, say, cuisines in India. Yeah. Uh, you know, and so it's not, you know, India itself, you know, it's a billion people and one of the actually most ethnically and culturally diverse countries on earth. Yeah. And, and it's lumped in with generic Arabia and, yeah. uh, right, and North Africa, right? And so it's, and that's, again, one of the, the hallmarks of Orientalism. Right. And, and I think, and I, and I think what I was trying to bring out in this thread is the fact that, you know, there are shorthands, ways for people to, kind of signal that they're drawing a certain culture. And and that's what Disney does in Aladdin. It's and like lazy artistic representation. It's just lazy. You know, it's just, time. Right. And and people will do it, you know, when you're not dealing with humans, it's less controversial. Yeah. And so I've seen people critiquing, um, you know, the way, for example, dinosaurs are drawn in cartoons. And, and they're given like a sort of, alligator belly and a dragging tail which mm. dinosaurs would not have had mm. and but people are like but this is what cartoonists draw dinosaurs to look like so it doesn't matter that it's wrong and 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 but but it's much more problematic when you're of course dealing with you know actual groups of actual people but you're being just as lazy uh and and and, and when, marginalized cultures right especially and mar it, well, higher that's, stakes. That's especially it. I mean, so when you're dealing with a country like Canada or the United States that have, you know, at this point, many decades of of a legacy of intervention in places like, say, Palestine and Israel and Syria uh, and, and so on in Iraq. Um, and so when you have that legacy and, and you're still coming up with, with policy um, that affects the real lives and safety of people in those kinds of countries, it, it actually, it becomes much more harmful when the people that are voting for these policies have this really caricatured and lazy idea of, of what kinds of people they're dealing with. Um, and so it's, you know, we can just assume that everybody is the same and uh, and we we can just have a kind of unnuanced approach to it. Um, and so I'm not convinced that things like Aladdin, but all those kinds of orientalizing things um, have a real effect. And, and I mean, the reason I, I wrote that thread, too, was in response to that Serena Williams. Mm, the cartoon. Um, yeah. yeah, cartoon that, that I mean, and the artist knew that he, he wasn't just drawing someone throwing the tantrum, but the fact that you have decades or more than a century in the United States of minstrel shows. Yeah, you got to see it in the wider context. These right. things don't happen in a vacuum. And the fact that Serena Williams herself already takes a lot of heat for being too, quote, masculine and muscular. And you have these very negative stereotypes of the large, angry black woman. Yeah, just and full disclosure, any comment on the tennis part of it, I, I don't know because I absolutely do not watch right. or know anything about tennis. But yeah. Well, and again, she could have been wrong and, you know, she could have done the wrong thing. And, you know, even if she wasn't treated, let's say, by the ref worse than male tennis players like people were claiming, even if that's not the case, you can't, it's your the responsibility. The cartoon itself, yeah. Right, it's your responsibility as an artist not to be like, let's do something that's unmistakably tying into, it, not only were these offensive to black people, but it helped perpetuate white supremacy over black people. Because if you're white and you have a Jim Crow system or an unofficial Jim Crow system like um, election district gerrymandering in the U.S. and voter suppression – or cops killing people, um, it becomes much easier to not feel bad about that 
Yeah. If you actually think that, that people are more prone to kind of criminality or, or lack of control or... And right now, things. people are sensitive. There's a guy who's sympathetic to all these alt-right types in the White House. Yeah. It, right. It's, it's, this isn't just sort of your average context. Right. It, <laughs> I mean, it, we're dealing with very real... We're dealing with Charlottesville. We're dealing yeah. with, you know, um, all these things. And, Honestly, and it's, five years ago... You know, I would have said, look, you know, let's racism has improved a lot and let's not right. be nitpicky about these tiny little things. But right now I can understand why people are frightened, why mm -hmm. I'm frightened, because I've never seen this in my life. Like, right. uh, you know, here in Canada, of course, I've seen racism in Saudi Arabia, but that's another conversation. But sure. yeah, and you were talking about real world effects, like public policy polling did a survey asking people if they would be okay bombing um, Agrabah, which is the fictional oh, right, which is country. City. Yeah, Aladdin's <laughs> fictional country. And 30% of Republican primary voters <laughs> said that they supported bombing Agrabah. Absolutely. And even 19% of Democrats apparently said that they would be fine with it. So these are like the real world effects. Right. And in Toronto, you know, right now, uh, you know, when we're dealing with cartoons like the one of Serena Williams, we're dealing in a, in a, in a city that, you know, people are, you know, arguing about things that, that really affect overwhelmingly and disproportionately the black community uh, and the other otherwise racialized community, things like carding mm -hmm. and Tavis mm -hmm. and all of these things that Toronto has. And, and these are in and so to perpetuate and to celebrate these negative stereotypes of, you say, black people uh, in a in a context when you're making real decisions that will affect the real lives and perceptions of of people in those communities. It's 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 a real thing that you have to address. Yeah, and I just want to take this moment, I know I've made this point before, but also on the left, sometimes these lazy depictions have real-world effects for women like me, like in the election time leading up to Trump, that Shepard Fairey made that poster, you know, it was a very powerful, iconic image of a woman in a U.S. flag hijab. Right. Which... I understand what he's trying to do. I, I completely sympathize with the desire to, you know, show solidarity with Muslims right now. And the easiest graphic way to do that is that, except that's a tool used to keep women in line in countries like Saudi Arabia. So I can't help but look at it and feel like a pang of betrayal, you know. Well, there's there's no reason why we couldn't also consider that to be the same kind of artistic shorthand. It is, exactly. Right? And so it's, how do you say that this, I mean, what he was writing it, you know, he, he drew it in order to, as you say, sort of rightly stand against you know, Trump's talks of a Muslim ban and yeah. all these kinds of things and, and to show solidarity. But he did that by just reaching for kind of this very ready to hand and, and generalizing shorthand yeah um, that and, and as you bring out i mean there there are very serious cultural and religious issues at play that that affect people like you much more than they affect me who i can just feel good about myself if i retweet this picture yeah because i want to signal that i'm against trump's you know marginalizing of muslims and, and in favor of immigration even of people who are religiously muslim but without without doing my job to take into account how that kind of imagery affects people that are different from me. Right. Whereas I have a relative who makes her, you know, nine-year-old wear it. And I know that the kid doesn't want to wear it. And she's yeah. never going to say that if asked, because they're taught to say that this is my choice. And you saw that in even the CBC documentary I was mentioning before, that they are actually taught to say, this is my choice. This is empowering. They can't honestly speak about it. So... Right. To use that as a symbol of empowerment, of solidarity, I'm like, but it doesn't express solidarity with most of the Muslims I know because most of the Muslims I know are not hijabis. Okay. So, yeah. So I just want people to be conscious of that in terms of the conversation around Orientalism as well. Yeah, and, and I'm glad. And we have to keep 
reminding ourselves, uh, I do is certainly um, that even though I would, you know, of course, identify much more with the left. Than me too, the right, me too. But this is Orientalism and stereotyping and the use of, of lazy shorthand imagery like this right. is, is not a right or left yeah, I mean, Phenomenal. maybe I mean, you could yeah. use, like, a T-shirt with a crescent and a star. I don't know, like a necklace with a crescent and a star. Something to indicate that the person in the drawing right. is Muslim, but doesn't have to be the ultimate conservative garment, you know? It doesn't have to be championing a certain form of Islam right? in, in a context in which these things are contested yes. and controversial. Yes, exactly. Right. But again, those are harder to come up with if you're a cartoonist. <laughs> I, I'm an illustrator, too. And right, okay. <laughs> I know. I'm not saying they shouldn't work at it. Yeah, but you can if you're, if you're thoughtful. And I'm not saying that I have probably never done it, reached for like the easy way, because sometimes you need to make it painfully obvious for people to understand your cartoon or whatever point you're getting across. I get it. Right. But if we all think a little bit harder, we can maybe make more nuanced points. Right. Islam is one of those topics right now where it's it's a hard Absolutely. thing to discuss. And, um, and, and it's hard. And, and, and those like me who are so concerned with kind of fighting back against increasing kind of white nationalist sentiment um, do run the risk and sometimes, you know, stumble on. Um, buying into stereotypes yeah. in, in their own ways. And, and I, I appreciate that your your perspective on that because you know uh it, it doesn't mean that just because white nationalists are the worst doesn't mean that <laughs> doesn't mean and we can all agree on that it doesn't mean that i get to sort of slack off uh, on you know understanding the issues that i'm, I'm trying to appropriate right and that uh, means you know, a to lot to hear yeah that's really good to hear and um it's like the, the reverse of that you know because isis is the worst it doesn't mean that you get to slack off on, you know, on white nationalists and other kinds of extremism that are happening around you. Right. Well, it's always easier, of course, for everybody, you know, like like to to um, call out those things that are further away from you and require less work on your part. Yeah. So I can whine about, you know, women's rights in other parts of the world if I'm, you know, a, a Peterson fan. Um, while ignoring my own role in standing against women's rights here because it would require a change of behavior on my part. Yeah. Um, and on the same the same token, it's easy for me to, to, to speak out against you know, neo-Nazis because I'm not a neo-Nazi. Um, <laughs> but it's harder for me to call out you know, people that are allied with me for when they do things that are appropriative or, or um, marginalizing. And, and it's even harder still for me to, to, to recognize it when I'm doing it. And uh, it's just, it's a constant journey uh, and it's a constant yeah. um, an exercise in self-reflection. And, and, you know, I, I try to do it and I sometimes fail. And I think if, we, if I want to encourage anyone to do anything, it's just always be, um, mindful of those things and, and, and careful to examine how you're approaching things and whether or not you are um, doing it carefully and responsibly. Mm -hmm. And just one thing before uh, I let you go is um, you, I saw you mentioned that uh, someone was criticizing your thread saying that you criticizing Aladdin was similar to Peterson freaking out about Frozen. Right. right. So, you know, I understand the difference between those things very well, but just for people in the audience, if you right. could explain how they're different and why uh, it's I, important to understand that. Yeah. So to, to be honest with you, for my own mental health, I haven't watched Peterson's rant against Frozen. <laughs> um, I've received kind of the Twitter gist of it, that he's mad because it's it's removing the kind of traditional archetypical, as he's always into these archetypes, um, uh, hero roles. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of an anti-masculinist, you know, and women's lib kind of message mm -hmm. that, that isn't only kind of eye rolling because it's women's lib and anti-masculinist, but that it, it actually is harmful because it is telling men, especially or boys, that 
they, they don't get to be the hero, all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why he was mad at Frozen. I, I was more mad at Frozen because I thought it was a terrible movie, but that's that's a different... Um, <laughs> I just I was like, there are better movies than this. I mean, Tangled's a better movie. Anyway, um, I but I... Uh, uh, so the 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 difference is I'm a I don't hate Aladdin and if I if that came across in my thread that's wrong I mean I watched it my kids have watched it with mm-hmm. me um, I laugh at it I think it's a very entertaining movie but it does unmistakably have these elements and I'm just trying to point them out and I was only using it as an example to say you know to comment on the Serena Williams comment to say here's what I mean by iconography and artistic shorthand Mm -hmm. that there are ways to sort of cut corners to 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 show a certain you know to to, to put things in a certain context almost immediately whereas peterson was just worried that elsa and anna saving the day themselves is you know you don't get to be an archetype jungian hero or this kind of thing Uh, so I, i do think we have different approaches yeah, he he basically wants to save uh, tradition in how these fairy tales are told, and you basically want us to self-reflect and sort of evolve as our values as a society and culture evolve. Well, right, and and I think that I think thank you. I think that's probably the the, the fundamental difference that that Peterson thinks we're losing something to the point of you know threatening the stability of society itself. <laughs> Whereas I actually think by having more nuance and more discussions and more openness, like this conversation I've enjoyed with you today, that we're actually only adding things and gaining things that are valuable. Uh, And so that's the way I prefer to look at things. Yeah. And and that's the thing. People think that, you know, someone on the left will, will have this type of conversation. They want, you know, they hate it. They want it eradicated. They're policing it. And it's like, no. It's right. just that as we grow as a culture, we just notice things. It, it, it's going to happen like 20 years down the line for what we're saying today, maybe. And that's right. okay because we cannot know how our values evolve in the future. That's okay to look back at things and be like, oh, you know, that was kind of, I'm pretty sure I've said problematic things and cringe oh, about have. them later. You just <laughs> yeah. learn. As you learn and grow, yeah. this is bound to happen. Friends, you look back at friends sometimes like, oh my God. Doesn't oh, mean that you're like, people should not watch friends. Or even John Stewart had some bits that are like pretty transphobic and stuff. And Yeah, well it was just everybody I mean, you know, when I was growing up, I you know, in high school of course called things gay. Yeah, same. You I know, think. or 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 used like, you know, retarded yeah. and things like this. And instead of you know, as growing as a person, you, you get to that point where you're like, you know, we should talk about these things. And, you know, I'm not I don't hate myself for doing it, but I, I it's part of growing up. Yeah. And, <laughs> and there's no harm in yeah. just yeah. self reflecting, right? Yeah. So, yeah, I've really enjoyed this very rich and nuanced discussion. It was really fun to chat with you about this topic. I've had so many thoughts for so long on it. Well, I'm so glad you invited me, and this has been a real pleasure. Excellent. Well, uh, thanks again for coming on, and perhaps we'll chat again. Absolutely. All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian Mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal. NiceMangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too.